Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. Nehemiah has inherited the mantle of leadership from Ezra. And that means it's now Nehemiah's turn to deal with the greatest hit of Israel's classic sin, the men marrying pagan women and worshiping their gods. But Nehemiah is going to have his own brand of drastic measures to bring about repentance. There's controversy around Ezra's mass divorce that he oversaw that took like three months. There's no controversy really over uh, what Nehemiah is about to do. And I say that because I don't think anybody's really defending <laughs> what he's going to do to people who... Uh, either marry and then worship false gods or give their sons and daughters away in marriage uh, that leads to pagan worship because it's really bad. <laughs> Here's Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23. In those days, I saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Look at this, man. It's, it's back again. They had just taken a vow to never do this, and now here they are doing it again. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. So he's not being, uh, he's not being racist here. Rather, the fact that they can't speak Hebrew means that they can't read the law of God. And if they're marrying women from Moab, that means that they're sacrificing children. Okay, they're worshiping Chemosh. They're worshiping Molech. So here's verse 25. I rebuked them, cursed them beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives uh, for your sons or yourselves. Like I said, there's no controversy here. The closest that I've seen to any commentator trying to explain or even remotely defend this is to say that corporal punishment was pretty common throughout the Middle East. I'll submit to you, it is never prescribed in the Word of God that, uh, that a spiritual leader would take men by the hair and beat them because of their sin. And we all can see the futility of forcing someone to take an oath. I mean, in modern day, contracts are null and void if uh, one party has signed it while under duress. Uh, they've, they're under, under compulsion to do so. <laughs> and so it's never prescribed by God. It's violent and it's also futile because uh, they'll, these men will make whatever vow you want them to. If they're like, look, I, I'll, I'll say whatever you want. Just stop beating me, Nehemiah. <laughs> now, here is, here is his rationale. Okay, well, I, I don't advocate for Nehemiah's corporal punishment methods. Uh, I admire how seriously he takes sin, at least. And I also do hear loud and clear what he says after he has physically beaten these men and un, uh, forced them to, to take oaths under duress, which are therefore unenforceable. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? He's spot on there. There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God and God made him king over all Israel, yet foreign women drew him into sin. This is spot on. Okay, this is, this is exactly right. It doesn't get any smarter or richer than Solomon. God gave the man incredible wisdom because he asked for it. And that man fell into this trap. If King Solomon, the smartest of us all for all time, fell into this trap, then you and I don't stand a chance. So this is how it goes. 
no matter how smart they are, when there is sexual sin involved, if they fall into it, they can rationalize it. Solomon did it. These men of Israel had done it under Nehemiah's leadership and Ezra before his and in Zor under Zerubbabel's leadership before him. I mean, this, this is, goes back all the way to Balaam. This is ancient history. It's, a, it's, the classic, it's the classic trap for the Old Testament men of God, marrying women who worshiped false gods and then taking on that worship for themselves. Now, as New Testament believers, you and I can look at this and feel completely disconnected from it. Uh, but the same trap remains. Now it's just in a different continent and it takes a different form. Today, as New Testament believers, it comes when you want a theology that rationalizes your lust. And so you will reshape your view of what the Word of God clearly says to come up with a theology that accommodates your sin, or to be a little bit more closely directly uh, related to the context of Nehemiah chapter 13, I've seen pastors suddenly completely change hermeneutics because their child tells them they're gay. All right, when a, when a pastor's kid comes out as transgender, that pastor suddenly changes his whole theology. Now, I, I can imagine that's a profoundly difficult situation to be in, but it's futile to change your theology. It's about as futile as Nehemiah trying to compel people with corporal punishment to take oaths before God. All right, you, you can't convince yourself that you can't read. And you'll go your whole life knowing that you're lying to yourself when you're trying to say that God said something he didn't say. So this is the way that New Testament believers can fall into a similar trap. We may not be Israelite men in the Old Testament intermarrying with worshipers of Molech and Chemosh, uh, but we can be prone to this idea that if I fall into lust, I can just come up with some way to rationalize it spiritually. Or if my kid wants to fall into some sort of uh, sexual perversion, I can, I can contort my whole take on what the Bible says and pretend like it doesn't say what it actually says as a way of rationalizing my own kid's sin. And that's, that's the New Testament equivalent, I believe. Uh, verse 27, why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against your God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of the high priest, Eliashib, had become a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. I, we, we see a little bit more about this in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. Uh, see the original series titled The Revival Project for more on that. Now in verse 29, he sort of interjects his brief prayer. It's an imprecatory prayer. It's distinctive in the book of Nehemiah because instead of asking God for blessing, uh, he's asking God to uh, discipline his children. Remember them my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So uh, it's a bit of an anticlimactic prayer as you close in on the end of the book of Nehemiah. There's one more uh, prayer for, for, for blessing, I think, before the text closes. And then verse 30, So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and the Levites. So, yeah, while I don't recommend Nehemiah's approach dealing with other people's sin, I do recommend heeding his advice, especially when it comes to the sin of lust. When we sin sexually, we sin against our own bodies. This was something that trapped ancient Israel. It's something that can contort the theologies of modern-day Christians. All right, when, when you're 
view on what is sexually ethical is in conflict with scripture, one of these two things is going to fall, my friend, and it's not going to be the everlasting word of God. And so regardless of whom you love, who is given over to a certain act that the Bible is explicitly labeled as sin, you must be honest with yourself. Uh, uh, oaths made under duress and compulsion are inadmissible in courts of law and before God. So don't try to convince yourself that you're actually okay with sin when you aren't, whether it's somebody else's or your own. All of these campaigns, from Zerubbabel's to Ezra's to Nehemiah's, collectively rebuilt the house of God in Jerusalem. Our campaign, The Revival Project, has a brand new landing page at redemptionwashington.com. Go take a look at where we are and where we need to go. As we conclude this study of Ezra and Nehemiah about the rebuilding of a house for God, let's build a house for God right here in Washington. Amen.